Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks for listening for the week of July 24th, 2023. Thousands of people attended the Veterans of Foreign Wars National Convention in Phoenix this week. At its peak, the VFW counted more than 2 million members. Now it's just under 1 million. An aging demographic is partly to blame, but the group also has a reputation for being for men only. Christina Estes reports on efforts to attract more women. As a German linguist, Amy McKenzie was stationed in West Berlin during the rise and fall of the wall. At a session called How to Engage Women Veterans, she recalled visiting her local VFW post in Pennsylvania after leaving the Air Force. In the hopes of joining as a regular member and automatically being handed an auxiliary application. She requested a regular application, went through the verification process, and became a member in 2006. The old guard, that's what I call them, called me the blonde girl for three years. <laughs> Today, she's called the VFW Department of Pennsylvania Women Veterans Chairperson. Mackenzie oversees an annual conference for and about women veterans. We have a whole series of events that we do covering the VA benefits. The benefits have never been bigger. The VFW pushed for last year's PACT Act, a new law that will spend $700 billion to expand VA health care and benefits. And one of the most important things the VFW does is help its members navigate the federal bureaucracy to get the benefits. We bring in service officers who will process claims right on the spot. But many female veterans never get help from the VFW because it has a reputation as an old boys club. And then you're dealing with military men, you know, they can be very sexist. In the Army, Denise Perry encountered sexism and racism. Still, she joined her local VFW in Maryland and achieved leadership positions all the way to the national level. Perry credits a local commander for being an early mentor and sees greater diversity at these conventions, but says more women need to be tapped for leadership positions. A lot of the incoming commanders, they can appoint people. No, everybody's not elected. If you would just give them those appointments at the national level, that would trickle down, I think, to the lower level also. At this year's convention, the VFW elected its first woman as National Junior Vice Commander, Army veteran Carol Whitmore. In 2025, she'll become the group's first female commander-in-chief. That's not why I'm doing this. I'm a veteran first, but I will be a different face than what they're used to seeing, and I think that will encourage other women to want to join and do things. The VFW says most members don't list gender on their applications, but 4% have identified as female. Based on event attendance and veteran and military demographics, the VFW thinks it's more like 8%. I don't assume anything. Back at the session on how to engage women veterans, Barbara Lankar, who served in the Army, says when recruiting in public... Ask the females that are out there as they're coming by, <laughs> are you a veteran? Marine veteran Debbie McElhannon shared a lesson about promotion after a Louisiana event didn't go over so well because of three letters on a flyer, VFW. We were told by some women veterans who did not come to the event, they automatically thought males, that males are going to be over this convention for women because they saw VFW really big. The goal is to flip that reaction, to make those three letters a welcome sign for all. It won't be easy, but as these women said, they're not quitting. 
They deserve to be VFW members and get the benefits they've earned. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news. While temperatures push well above 100 degrees, it's easy to forget that Arizona's deserts lie on top of groundwater basins that formed during the Ice Age. The state's rural communities rely on that water, which experts say is a finite resource. But in most cases, it's not regulated in any meaningful way. That lack of regulation has begun to show as wells dry up and local residents call for action. But as Ron Dungan reports, the same political roadblocks that have long existed at the state capitol are still in place. More than four decades ago, Arizona attempted to pass a statewide groundwater law. Resistance from rural stakeholders forced the state to settle for a law that focused only in urban areas. Policymakers assumed that a law for rural communities would come later. It never did. 80% of the state's land area is essentially unprotected, unmanaged when it comes to its groundwater supplies. That's Haley Paul of Audubon Southwest. Out-of-state agriculture companies have noticed the lack of regulation, and they've come to set up shop in Arizona. Water tables have begun to drop. So it, it really is the deepest well winds. A Saudi-financed company that grows alfalfa with La Paz County groundwater and ships it overseas has made headlines, but they're not alone. Cattle growers from Minnesota and nut farmers from California have also come to drop deep wells in the desert. They're backed by hedge funds or corporations. It's a shame because in the meantime, people's wells are going dry and people are feeling like they have no option. Arizona has a reputation as a business-friendly state with a Republican legislature that tries to keep it that way. Some GOP lawmakers have begun to question the lack of action on groundwater, but they haven't been able to do anything about it. Kathleen Ferris of the Kyle Center for Water Policy helped write the groundwater law of 1980. She says that when corporate farmers in other states run out of groundwater, they come to the Arizona desert. They come here and they come to these areas to to grow crops because they can. Very simply, the law allows them to do it. Lawmakers have proposed several bills in recent years, but they die in committee. And rarely, rarely do they get a hearing, even get a hearing. So you can't move a bill forward in the legislature unless the committee that has been assigned the bill holds a hearing and votes the bill out of committee. The bills get assigned to the Natural Resources, Energy, and Water Committees, where they die. The chairs of these legislative committees have a great deal of power, and they really have the power to decide the ultimate fate of a bill. The House committee is chaired by Republican Gail Griffin, a real estate broker at Sierra Vista Realty. The Senate committee by Republican Sina Kerr, a dairy farmer from Buckeye. Both declined requests for interviews. Ferris says that although Republicans in areas hit hard by corporate agriculture want change, groundwater is far from a bipartisan issue. La Paz County Supervisor Holly Irwin says that people are getting frustrated. We can't even get hearings on bills. That's the problem. In some cases, the state can't even take measurements, which means our understanding of the water table is incomplete. We need to find out, number one, what's underneath the ground. And number two, we need to do something to protect what we do have. Irwin says she understands why people might resist regulation. And I totally understand their perspective. But my whole thing is, okay, then let's all get to the table. What will work to where we can start protecting what we have, you know, before it's too late? 
She says for La Paz County residents, the biggest frustration is watching water get shipped off to other places, to Saudi Arabia, for example, or piped to Queen Creek, which happened recently when a corporate farm in a county sold its share of Colorado River water. To be honest with you, you can't keep kicking this can down the road. You know, they're going to have to do something. La Paz County shouldn't be the sacrificial lamb for everybody else. She's optimistic that with a new administration, something might get done. Governor Katie Hobbs has appointed a committee to study the problem, but any meaningful change will likely have to go through the legislature. And we can't get it heard in the committee of jurisdiction. They just won't even hear the bill. We can't even get hearings. In April, the legislature appointed its own committee to study Arizona's water supply. It's co-chaired by Griffin and Kerr. Ron Duncan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation, an excess of one thing and a need for another has led to a unique solution in northern Arizona. The program has found use for unusable wood products and provides training for many young Native Americans. As Al Macias reports, the Wood for Life project is helping Arizona forests while also providing fuel for Native American communities in several other western states. A few miles west of Flagstaff, about a mile and a half off Interstate 40, on a dirt road in the Coconino National Forest, past campsites and joggers running through the trees, it's not just the wind you hear. Several crews of young adults are cutting up downed trees, hauling them out of the forest to a site where other crews are sawing them into 15-foot logs and then into smaller pieces and handing them off to others who are loading those pieces into log splitters where they are broken into chunks of firewood. The piles of firewood are made available to Navajo and Hopi tribal members who arrive in pickups to haul away the wood, which is used for cooking and heating in the winter months. If not cut, smaller trees, which are too small for logging purposes, add fuel to forest fires, so the thinning serves multiple purposes. Marshall Masiespa is the Hopi coordinator for the Ancestral Lands Conservation Corps. We're an indigenous-specific conservation corps that operates within our communities. Masiespa says the young people learn valuable skills and certifications that they can add to a resume. He says the training and experience can provide opportunities for tribal youth who may have limited opportunities on the reservation. He says it is important for tribal members to see firsthand what is happening. It's really important for me when we have distributions like this, uh, what I like to call bringing the community to the individual and the individual to the community so they can see each other. Um, So when they're parked up here uh, waiting in line, uh, they can see these young people acting uh, in a professional light and then see the operations end and they'll start to connect as like, wow, this is really something. Ancestral Lands, along with the National Forest Foundation and the U.S. Forest Service, are all working together with the Wood for Life program. The areas are broken up into 30 to 50 acre sites. Elise Sawa with the U.S. Forest Service is going over some of the project details with Masa Yesva. Basically, once you get in a unit and you guys have a Venza, right, you're going on it, you go in that unit, and you guys can go all around, and whatever's not marked, that's your choice. The Navajo Generating Station, a coal-fired power plant near Page, operated for nearly half a century before it was closed. 2019, um, the the coal mine shut down um, that heats most of their homes, so we did have that need of, wow, we don't have this, you know, we don't have this type of energy anymore. 
but there was other fuel available. We have some wood um, that is not useful or we can't, it can't be sold or things like that. So it was just sitting there. So we found kind of a use for it. So that's why it is so unique. Larger trees are marked to be saved and smaller trees targeted to be cut. Smaller branches and brush are mulched. The logs are cut into firewood and this year some of the larger logs are being used for posts that can be used for building. Wood from other thinning projects around the state is also trucked up to the Hopi and Navajo reservations for those who can't make the trip down to this site. Nearby, Holly Lauren Lomayesva, a member of the Hopi tribe, is standing by to flag down arriving pickup trucks and direct them to a wood pile. She has been with Ancestral Lands for six years. She says it's been a great opportunity. I just want to give back and show our youth that there's more to life and other careers rather than, you know, a re regular typical job, um, that they can pursue something that's unique and give back to our people and the land in a different way. Down the road, Dustin Begay, who is from the Navajo Reservation, and his crew are taking a break. He's been with the program for two years. He says the experience has already led to other opportunities. I moved into wildland firefighting and I was a sawyer as well on a hotshot crew from that. And I came back to um, perfect my skills here. Forest thinning, fuel for tribes, experience, and training for young people are all coming together in the Wood for Life program in Arizona's forest. Reporting from the Coconino National Forest, Al Macias for KJZZ News. And KJZZ is supported by Wood for Life. In science news, here's Nicholas Gerbis. The World Health Organization says two simple actions could protect millions from drowning and yield monetary benefits up to nine times the amount invested. The call to action came the same day Phoenix firefighters rescued an unconscious three-year-old girl from a backyard pool. The WHO's investment case says by 2050, investing in daycare for preschool-aged children and teaching basic swim skills to school-aged children could save more than 770,000 lives and prevent close to 1 million non-fatal child drownings, which can cause severe, life-limiting injuries. Phoenix Fire Captain Todd Keller says the key is to watch children around water. The number one thing is proper adult supervision. There is absolutely no replacement for adult supervision. Keller added Phoenix Fire responded to at least five drowning calls on Sunday alone. Globally, drowning has caused more than 2.5 million deaths in the past decade, 90% of them in low- and middle-income countries. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Now from KJZZ Original Productions, let's take a break and hear a tiny desert concert from the show. Here's co-host Mark Brody. And now it's time for our next tiny desert concert. Phoenix resident Paula Tesoriero is a classically trained pianist who uses her background to write songs on guitar. However, having never taken a single guitar lesson, she feels a greater sense of freedom to create deeply personal music. I caught up with Tessiero after Paula T. and Company's performance in the Center Space Gallery at the Scottsdale Center for the Performing Arts. The and Company refers to a rotating cast of musicians that plays behind Paula, who notes she's never played a show with the same collection of artists. I started off our conversation by asking her to describe her genre of music. So the genre I think it's most suited for is one that I made up myself, which is called Sad Americana. Ah, okay. Sometimes I like to throw in sad orchestral Americana, but it depends on who I'm playing with. Why so sad? I find that for me, music, composing music is a helpful way for me to process things. 
But it tends to be my more distressing emotions that I have the easiest time <laughs> musically processing. Like it's it's sometimes difficult for me to write a, a happy song. And perhaps that's because when I'm happy, it kind of feels a little bit more momentary than sadness, which tends to stick around a little more poignantly. So if there's something going on in your life that is not particularly happy, like what's your process then? Like how do you try to maybe use the music a little bit as therapy to sort of help yourself process and get through it? It's It tends to be a space when I'm alone um, and I'll have a guitar, or I'll be at the piano and I'll just start improvising and I'll just sing words that come to my head. And if after I find that they're ideas that I want to utilize in a more concrete song, then I'll try to go back and remember what I did and record it. Sometimes I happen to be recording it, and sometimes it just goes with the wind. Given that you've been doing this for a while, I hope that there are other inspirations for your songs other than just your own sadness. Yes, very much so. Okay, good. Yeah. What 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 kinds of things do you tend to look to? Um, I mean, sometimes artists. So I would I would say that probably half at least half the album if not a little bit more um each individual song was inspired by a different song <laughs> so from a, just a range of artists and i was either trying to copy like the or not copy but be influenced by the sentiment of a song um sometimes by the instrumentation of a song sometimes by melodies sometimes by lyrical rhythms, melodic rhythms, seldom actually, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it, by the context of the song. Hmm. And I will say, oddly enough, lyrics are the last things I hear when I listen to songs. Wow. Well, so like if you're trying to sort of emulate a different song or style, like how do you try to do that without copying it, without like making your version of what somebody else has already done? I've listened to so much music in my life and there are certainly chord progressions that I find people use more often than not. And um, so what I like to do um, is throw in just a chord or try to try to find a chord that I maybe haven't either heard before or haven't heard in the context of like a more coherent song, like maybe like a jazz chord or something like that. Sometimes like the simpler the better melodically, but I also like to do some pretty extravagant kind of like moving around. And I think that those two things are kind of like the base of any of my songs and do, I don't know if it's, a, if it's an intentional thing necessarily of like, I'm going to do this so I don't sound like this song. Because okay. none of my songs ever end up sounding like other songs. <laughs> and if I feel like they do, then I'll send it to like 10 people and be like, tell me what this sounds like. And they're like, nothing. <laughs> it doesn't really? sound like anything else. Well, so it's interesting because given, as you say, that the genre that you feel your music best, best fits into is one that you made up yourself, mm-hmm. I would imagine that could be either very liberating in the sense that you can listen to pretty much anything and try to draw inspiration from it and sort of incorporate it into the kind of music you're doing. But also, I would imagine, might be paralyzing because there are no Mm -hmm. limits, right? Like, you can do anything. In a certain way, yeah. And I think that I feel a little bit at that stage at the moment, at least in terms of composition. I don't know. I also just trust that things will come up again and maybe I'll hear a song and be inspired or maybe... I don't know. Maybe I'll do like an improvised album. Who knows? Wow. The sky's the limit, right? You can <laughs> really do pretty is. much anything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're inventing the genre. There's no nobody telling you you can't. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So can you guys play a song for us? Yeah. This song is called The Western Song, 
and it was inspired by a group of musicians asking other musicians to write a Western song. <laughs> and this is what came. do you tend to draw your inspiration from? Like what, I guess maybe what kinds of music do you most enjoy listening to? And maybe they're the same, maybe they're different, but where do you tend to find the most inspiration for your own music? So I 
was a classically trained pianist, so I think that there are harmonic and melodic sentiments that stem from just my familiarity with that type of music. And I really, I did some jazz piano. I didn't get too far into it, but I listened to a lot of jazz at that time. And so I think that there's something about the more complex chordal arrangements and harmonies. And then I love folk music as well as, yeah, some some rock. I mean, like the Beatles when I was growing up just blew my mind. And it was primarily their melodies um, that I was intensely drawn to. So you mentioned that you are a classically trained pianist, and I know that you've been playing piano for a long time, but in these songs, you're now playing guitar. Like, is that something that you've also been playing for a long time, or like, is that something you picked up recently? I kind of messed around on the guitar, like, uh, when I was younger. My dad played it, so I was around. Never took any lessons or anything, and then I went to Nova Scotia, I think, in 2016, and all that was available to me was a guitar there. Mm. So I spent a lot of time, and I was around a lot of people who were playing guitar, so picked up a few things from them. How do you find that being raised here, your second generation mm-hmm. uh, Arizona, and how do you find that that sort of works its way into your music? I think that there are some elements to it. I mean, I've taken a lot of a lot of drives just on my own through the desert, and some of the songs that inspired other songs of mine on the album so like pre-written songs that I listened to that I really enjoyed hearing on my drives that inspired my own music um they just came to life in a in a pretty emotionally significant way as like you know you're driving on the 17 north and the sun is rising or something like that um so I'd say that there's something in combination with the desert landscape and my emotional landscape that tends to work its way into my music I think So given that you have sort of this genre that you have created for yourself and you clearly have sort of a a process and a vision of how you like your music to be and where you draw inspiration, what would you like to do next? So I think it's worth noting that the music that I write on my own, well, so the songs are on mine, but I like to think of it like I'm providing the skeleton and then um, any musician that I play with, like they're the ones that are fleshing it out. So I think what I'd like to try to do is use that as um, a path to maybe collaborating with some of those musicians and seeing if there's a possibility in terms of writing music together Um, or at the very least um, maybe trying to involve them a little bit more in the creative writing process. See how that goes. All right. So can you guys play something out for us? Sure. This song is called Coda, and I was dog sitting actually when I wrote this song and was trying to write something kind of spooky then wanted to take it out of the spookiness (laughs) so you get a little surprise ending.
All right, Paula, thanks for the conversation. It was nice to meet you. It was nice to meet you too, Mark. Thank you. That was Paula T. and company performing at the Scottsdale Center for the Performing Arts. You can see the entire performance and catch the visual art on display behind and around the musicians on our website, theshow.kjzz.org. In education news, Governor Katie Hobbs has released new cost estimates for Arizona's school voucher program as part of an effort to get lawmakers to limit the program's growth. As Bridget Dowd reports, Hobbs says the empowerment scholarship accounts could cost the state more than $940 million annually. The new estimate exceeds what state lawmakers budgeted by more than $300 million. Hobbs says spending on ESAs could account for about 53 percent of all new K-12 education spending, going toward only 8 percent of Arizona students. But some Republicans disagree with those numbers, like House Speaker Ben Toma, who estimates only about 60,000 students will use the vouchers this year, compared to the governor's projection of 97,000. But her numbers do align with Republican Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tom Horns. He acknowledged that in a statement, saying her questioning of the department's methodology is unfair and unnecessary. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in Fronteras News. A bill introduced this week by Congressman Raul Grijalva and other lawmakers would strengthen federal protections for workers exposed to extreme heat. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick reports the bill is named after a farm worker who died in 2004. Lawmakers say that Asuncion Valdivia died of heat stroke in California after working 10 hours straight in 105-degree heat. The new legislation would require employers to give workers protective gear, like cooling vests, and take part in trainings to recognize the signs of heat illness. Shefali Mincharek Desai is an associate law professor at the University of Arizona. She says Arizona should create its own standards. Arizona doesn't need to wait for the federal legislation to come down. Um, That's something that the federal OSHA folks have said they are working on, but that could take many years to promulgate a new rule on the federal level. A farm worker in Yuma died this month from suspected heat-related causes. Lawmakers introduced a version of the bill in 2021, but it failed to pass. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And you've been listening to the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station. Stay hydrated. Stay hydrated.